Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash Support for more information. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tonight, I will be continuing the story, The Princess and the Goblin, by George MacDonald. So lie down. Close your eyes and let me read you a story. Chapter 8 The Goblins For some time, Curdy worked away briskly, throwing all the ore he had disengaged on one side behind him to be ready for carrying out in the morning. He heard a good deal of goblin tapping, but it all sounded far away in the hill and he paid it little heed. 
Towards midnight, he began to feel rather hungry. So he dropped his pickaxe, got out a lump of bread, which in the morning he had laid in a damp hole in the rock, sat down on a heap of ore, and ate his supper. Then he leaned back for five minutes' rest before beginning his work again and laid his head against the rock. He had not kept the position for one minute before he heard something which made him sharpen his ears. It sounded like a voice inside the rock. After a while he heard it again. It was a goblin voice. There could be no doubt about that. And this time he could make out the words. Hadn't we better be moving, it said. A rougher and deeper voice replied, There's no hurry. That wretched little mole won't be through tonight if he work ever so hard. He's not by any means at the thinnest place. But you still think the load does come through into our house, said the first voice. Yes, but a good bit further on than he's got to yet. If he had struck a stroke more to the side, just here, said the goblin, tapping the very stone, as it seemed to Curdy, against which his head lay, he would have been through. But he's a couple of yards past it now, and if he follow the load, it will be a week before it leads him in. You see it back there, a long way. Still, perhaps, in case of accident, it would be as well to be getting out of this. Helfer, you'll take the great chest. That's your business, you know. Yes, Dad, said a third voice. But you must help me to get it on my back. It's awfully heavy, you know. Well, it isn't just a bag of smoke, I admit. But you're as strong as a mountain, Helfer. You say so, Dad. I think myself I'm all right, but I could carry ten times as much if it wasn't for my feet. That is your weak point, I confess, my boy. Ain't it yours too, Father? Well, to be honest, it's a goblin weakness. Why they come so soft, I declare I haven't an idea. Especially when your head's so hard, you know, Father. Yes, my boy. The goblin's glory is his head. To think how the fellows up above there have to put on helmets and things when they go fighting. But why don't we wear shoes like them, Father? I should like it, especially when I've got a chest like that on my head. Well, you see, it's not the fashion. The king never wears shoes. The queen does. Yes, but that's for distinction. The first queen, you see, I mean the king's first wife, wore shoes. Of course, because she came from upstairs. And so, when she died, the next queen would not be inferior to her, as she called it, and would wear shoes too. It was all pride. She is the hardest in forbidding them to the rest of the women. I'm sure I wouldn't wear them. No, not for. That I wouldn't said the first voice, which was evidently that of the mother of the family. I can't think why either of them should. Didn't I tell you the first was from upstairs, said the other. That was the only silly thing I ever knew his majesty guilty of. Why should he marry an outlandish woman like that? One of our natural enemies, too. I suppose he fell in love with her. He's just as happy now with one of his own people. Did she die very soon? They didn't tease her to death, did they? Oh dear, no. The king worshipped her very footmarks. What made her die then? Didn't the heir agree with her? She died when the young prince was born. How silly of her. We never do that. It must have been because she wore shoes. I don't know that. Why do they wear shoes up there? Ah, now that's a sensible question, and I will answer it. But in order to do so, I must first tell you a secret. I once saw the queen's feet. Without her shoes, 
Yes, without her shoes. No. Did you? How was it? Never you mind how it was. She didn't know I saw them. And what do you think? They had toes. Toes? What's that? You may well ask. I should never have known if I had not seen the queen's feet. Just imagine. The ends of her feet were split up into five or six thin pieces. Oh, horrid. How could the king have fallen in love with her? You forget that she wore shoes. That is why she wore them. That is why all the men and women too upstairs wear shoes. They can't bear the sight of their own feet without them. Ah, now I understand. If you ever wish for shoes again, Helfer, I'll hit your feet, I will. No, no, mother, pray don't. Then don't you. With such a big box on my head. A horrid scream followed, which Curdy interpreted as a reply to a blow from his mother upon the feet of her eldest goblin. Well, I never knew so much before, remarked a fourth voice. Your knowledge is not universal quite yet, said the father. You were only fifty last month. Mind you see to the bed and bedding. As soon as we finished our supper, we'll be up and going. Ha! What are you laughing at, husband? I'm laughing to think what a mess the miners will find themselves in, somewhere before this day ten years. Why, what do you mean? Oh, nothing. Oh, yes, you do mean something. You always do mean something. It's more than you do, then, wife. That may be, but it's not more than I find out, you know. Ha, you're a sharp one. What a mother you've got, Helfer. Yes, father. Well, I suppose I must tell you. They're all at the palace consulting about it tonight. And as soon as we've got away from this thin place, I'm going there to hear what night they have fixed upon. I should like to see that young ruffian there on the other side, struggling in the agonies of... He dropped his voice so low that Curdie could hear only a growl. The growl went on in the low bass for a good while, as inarticulate as if the goblin's tongue had been a sausage. And it was not until his wife spoke again that it rose to its former pitch. But what shall we do when you're at the palace, she asked. I will see you safe in the new house I've been digging for you for the past two months. Hodge, you mind the table and chairs. I commit them to your care. The table has seven legs, each chair three. I shall require them all at your hands. After this arose a confused conversation about the various household goods and their transport, and Curdy heard nothing more that was of any importance. He now knew at least one of the reasons for the constant sound of the goblin hammers and pickaxes at night. They were making new houses for themselves, to which they might retreat when the miners should threaten to break into their dwellings. But he had learned two things of far greater importance. The first was that some grievous calamity was preparing and almost ready to fall upon the heads of the miners. The second was the one weak point of a goblin's body. He had not known that their feet were so tender as he had now reason to suspect. He had heard it said that they had no toes. He had never had any opportunity of inspecting them closely enough, in the dusk in which they always appeared, to satisfy himself whether it was a correct report. Indeed, he had not even been able to satisfy himself as to whether they had no fingers, although that also was commonly said to be the fact. One of the miners, indeed, who had had more schooling than the rest, was wont to argue that such must have been the primordial condition of humanity and that education and handicraft had developed both toes and fingers, with which proposition Curdie had once heard his father sarcastically agree, alleging in support of it 
the probability that Baby's gloves were a traditional remnant of the old state of things. While the stockings of all ages, no regard being paid in them to the toes, pointed in the same direction. But what was of importance was the fact concerning the softness of the goblin feet, which he foresaw might be useful to all miners. What he had to do in the meantime, however, was to discover, if possible, the special evil design the goblins had now in their heads. Although he knew all the gangs and all the natural galleries with which they communicated in the mind part of the mountain, he had not the least idea where the palace of the king of the goblins was. Otherwise, he would have set out at once on the enterprise of discovering what the said design was. He judged, and rightly, that it must lie in a further part of the mountain between which and the mine there was yet no communication. There must be one nearly completed, however, for it could be but a thin partition which now separated them. If only he could get through in time to follow the goblins as they retreated. A few blows would doubtless be sufficient, just where his ear now lay, but if he attempted to strike there with his pickaxe, he would only hasten the departure of the family, put them on their guard, and perhaps lose their involuntary guidance. He therefore began to feel the wall with his hands, and soon found that some of the stones were loose enough to be drawn out with little noise. Laying hold of a large one with both hands, he drew it gently out and lay it down softly. What was that noise? said the goblin father. Curdie blew out his light, lest it should shine through. It must be that one miner that stayed behind the rest, said the mother. No, he's been gone a good while. I haven't heard a blow for an hour. Besides, it wasn't like that. Then I suppose it must have been a stone carried down the brook inside. Perhaps. It will have more room by and by. Curdie kept quite still. After a long while hearing nothing but the sounds of their preparations for departure, mingled with an occasional word of direction, and anxious to know whether the removal of the stone had made an opening into the goblin's house, he put in his hand to feel. It went in a good way, and then came into contact with something soft. He had but a moment to feel it over, it was so quickly withdrawn. It was one of the tallest goblin feet. The owner of it gave a cry of fright. What's the matter, Helfer? asked his mother. A beast came out of the wall and licked my foot. Nonsense. There are no wild beasts in our country, said his father. But it was, father, I felt it. Nonsense, I say. Will you malign your native realms and reduce them to a level with the country upstairs? That is swarming with wild beasts of every description. But I did feel it, father. I will tell you to hold your tongue. You're no patriot. Curdie suppressed his laughter and lay still as a mouse, but no stiller. For every moment he kept nibbling away with his fingers at the edges of the hole. He was slowly making it bigger, for here the rock had been very much shattered with the blasting. There seemed to be a good many in the family, to judge from the mass of confused talk which now and then came through the hole. But when all were speaking together, and just as if they had bottle brushes, each at least one in their throats, it was not easy to make out much that was said. At length, he heard once more what the father goblin was saying. Now then, he said, get your bundles on your backs. Here, Helfer, I'll help you up with your chest. I wish it was my chest, father. Your turn will come in good time enough. Make haste. I must go to the meeting at the palace tonight. When that's over, we can come back and clear out the rest of the things before our enemies return in the morning. Now light your torches and come along. 
What a distinction it is to provide your own light instead of being dependent on a thing hung up in the air. A most disagreeable contrivance, intended no doubt to blind us when we venture out under its baleful influence. Quite glaring and vulgar, I call it, though no doubt useful to poor creatures who haven't the wit to make light for themselves. Curdy could hardly keep himself from calling through to know whether they made the fire to light their torches by. But a moment's reflection showed him that they would have said they did, inasmuch as they struck two stones together, and the fire came. Chapter 9 The Hall of the Goblin Palace A sound of many soft feet followed, but soon ceased. Then Curdy flew at the hole like a tiger and tore and pulled. The sides gave way, and it was soon large enough for him to crawl through. He would not betray himself by rekindling his lamp, but the torches of the retreating company, which he found departing in a straight line up a long avenue from the door of their cave, threw back light enough to afford him a glance round the deserted home of the goblins. To his surprise, he would discover nothing to distinguish it from an ordinary natural cave in the rock, upon many of which he had come with the rest of the miners in the progress of their excavations. The goblins had talked of coming back for the rest of their household gear. He saw nothing that would have made him suspect a family had taken shelter there for a single night. The floor was rough and stony, the walls full of projecting corners, the roof in one place twenty feet high and another endangering his head while on one side a stream, no thicker than a needle, it is true, but still sufficient to spread a wide dampness on the wall, flowed down the face of the rock. But the troop in front of him was toiling under heavy burdens. He could distinguish Helfer now and then in the flickering light and shade, with his heavy chest on his bending shoulders, while the second brother was almost buried in what looked like a great feather bed. Where do they get the feathers? thought Curdie but in a moment the troop disappeared at a turn of the way, and it was now both safe and necessary for Curdie to follow them, lest they should be round the next turning before he saw them again, for so he might lose them altogether. He darted after them like a greyhound. When he reached the corner and looked cautiously round, he saw them again at some distance down another long passage. None of the galleries he saw that night bore signs of the work of man, or of goblin either. Stalactites, far older than the mines, hung from their roofs, and their roofs were rough with boulders and large round stones, showing that there water must have once run. He waited again at this corner till they had disappeared round the next, and so followed them a long way through one passage after another. The passages grew more and more lofty and were more and more covered in the roof with shining stalactites. It was a strange enough procession which he followed, but the strangest part of it was the household animals which crowded against the feet of the goblins. It was true they had no wild animals down there, at least they did not know of any, but they had a wonderful number of tame ones. I must, however, reserve any contributions towards the natural history of these for a later position in my story. Turning a corner too abruptly, he had almost rushed into the middle of the goblin family, for there they had already set down all their burdens on the floor of a cave considerably larger than that which they had left. They were as yet too breathless to speak, else he would have had warning of their arrest. He started back, however, before anyone saw him, and retreating a good way stood watching till the father should come out to go to the palace. Before very long, he and his son Helfer appeared, 
and kept on in the same direction as before, while Curdy followed them again with renewed precaution. For a long time, he heard no sound except something like the rush of a river against the rock, but at length, what seemed the far-off noise of great shouting reached his ears, which, however, presently ceased. After advancing a good way further, he thought he heard a single voice. It sounded clearer and clearer as he went on, until at last he could almost distinguish the words. In a moment or two, keeping after the goblins round another corner, he once more started back, this time in amazement. He was at the entrance of a magnificent cavern, of an oval shape, once probably a huge natural reservoir of water, now the great palace hall of the goblins. It rose to a tremendous height, but the roof was composed of such shining materials, and the multitude of torches carried by the goblins who crowded the floor lighted up the place so brilliantly that Curdie could see to the top quite well. But he had no idea how immense the place was until his eyes had got accustomed to it, which was not for a good many minutes. The rough projections on the walls and the shadows thrown upwards from them by the torches made the sides of the chamber look as if they were crowded with statues upon brackets and pedestals, reaching in irregular tiers from roof to floor. The walls themselves were, in many parts, of gloriously shining substances, some of them quite gorgeously coloured besides, which powerfully contrasted with the shadows. Curdie could not help wondering whether his rhymes would be of any use against such a multitude of goblins as filled the floor of the hall, and indeed felt considerably tempted to begin his shout of one, two, three. But as there was no reason for routing them and much for endeavouring to discover their designs, he kept himself perfectly quiet and peering round the edge of the doorway, listened with both his sharp ears. At the other end of the hall, high above the heads of the multitude, was a terrace-like ledge of considerable height, caused by the receding of the upper part of the cavern wall. Upon this sat the king and his court, the king on a throne hollowed out of a huge block of green copper ore, and his court upon lower seats around it. The king had been making them a speech, and the applause which followed it was what Curdie had heard. One of the court was now addressing the multitude. What he heard him say was to the following effect. Hence it appears that two plans have been for some time together, working in the strong head of his majesty for the deliverance of his people. Regardless of the fact that we were the first possessors of the regions they now inhabit, regardless equally of the fact that we abandoned that region from the loftiest motives, regardless also of the self-evident fact that we excel them so far in mental ability as they excel us in stature, they look upon us as a degraded race, make a mockery of all our finer feelings. But the time has almost arrived when, thanks to His Majesty's inventive genius, it will be in our power to make a thorough revenge upon them once for all, in respect of their unfriendly behaviour. May it please Your Majesty, cried a voice close by the door, which Curdie recognised as that of the goblin he had followed. Who is he that interrupts the Chancellor? cried another from near the throne. Glump answered several voices. He's our trusty subject, said the king himself, in a slow and stately voice. Let him come forward and speak. A lane was parted through the crowd, and Glump, having ascended the platform and bowed to the king, spoke as follows. Sire, I would have held my peace had I not known that I only knew how near was the moment to which the Chancellor had just referred. In all probability, before another day is passed, the enemy will have broken through into my house. The partition between being even now 
not more than a foot in thickness. Not quite so much, thought Gertie to himself. This very evening I have had to remove my household effects. Therefore the sooner we are ready to carry out the plan, for the execution of which His Majesty has been making such magnificent preparations, the better. I may just add that within the last few days I have perceived a small outbreak in my dining room, which, combined with the observations upon the course of the river, escaping where the evil men enter, has convinced me that close to the spot must be a deep gulf in its channel. This discovery will, I trust, add considerably to the otherwise immense forces at His Majesty's disposal. He ceased, and the king graciously acknowledged his speech with a bend of his head, whereupon Glump, after a bow to His Majesty, slid down amongst the rest of the undistinguished multitude. Then the Chancellor rose and resumed. The information which the worthy Glump has given us, he said, might have been of considerable import at the present moment, but for that other design already referred to, which naturally takes precedence. His Majesty, unwilling to proceed to extremities, and well aware that such measures sooner or later result in violent reactions, has excogitated a more fundamental and comprehensive measure, of which I need say no more. Should His Majesty be successful, as who dares to doubt, then a peace, all to the advantage of the Goblin Kingdom, will be established for a generation at least, rendered absolutely secure by the pledge which His Royal Majesty the Prince will have and hold for the good behaviour of her relatives. Should His Majesty fail, which who shall dare even to imagine in his most secret thoughts, then will be the time for carrying out with rigour the design to which Glump referred, and for which our preparations are even now all but completed. The failure of the former will render the latter imperative. Perceiving that the assembly was drawing to a close, and that there was little chance of either plan being more fully discovered, now thought it prudent to make his escape before the goblins began to disperse and slipped quietly away. There was not much danger of meeting any goblins, for all the men at least were left behind him in the palace, but there was considerable danger of his taking a wrong turning, for he had now no light and had therefore to depend upon his memory and his hands. After he had left behind him the glow that issued from the floor of Glump's new abode, he was utterly without guide, so far as his eyes were concerned. He was most anxious to get back through the hole before the goblins should return to fetch the remains of their furniture. It was not that he was in the least afraid of them, but, as it was of the most importance that he should thoroughly discover what the plans they were cherishing were, he must not occasion the slightest suspicion that they were watched by a miner. He hurried on, feeling his way along the walls of the rock. Had he not been very courageous, he must have been very anxious, for he could not but know that if he lost his way, it would be the most difficult thing in the world to find it again. Morning would bring no light into these regions, and towards him least of all, who was known as a special rhymester and persecutor, could goblins be expected to exercise courtesy. Well might he wish that he had brought his lamp and tinderbox with him, of which he had not thought when he crept so eagerly after the goblins. He wished it all the more when, after a while, he found his way blocked up and could get no further. It was of no use to turn back, for he had not the least idea where he had begun to go wrong. Mechanically, however, he kept feeling about the walls that hemmed him in. His hand came upon a place where a tiny stream of water 
was running down the face of the rock. What a stupid I am, he said to himself. I am actually at the end of my journey. And there are the goblins coming back to fetch their things, he added, as the red glimmer of their torches appeared at the end of the long avenue that led up to the cave. In a moment, he'd thrown himself on the floor and wriggled backwards through the hole. The floor on the other side was several feet lower, which made it easier to get back. It was all he could do to lift the largest stone he had taken out of the hole, but he had to manage it to shove it in again. He sat down on the ore heap and thought. He was pretty sure that the latter plan of the goblins was to inundate the mine by breaking outlets for the water accumulated in the natural reservoirs of the mountain, as well as running through portions of it. While the part hollowed by the miners remained shut off from that inhabited by the goblins, they had had no opportunity of injuring them thus. But now that a passage was broken through and the goblins' part proved the higher in the mountain, it was clear to Curdie that the mine could be destroyed in an hour. Water was always the chief danger to which the miners were exposed. They met with a little choke damp sometimes, but never with the explosive fire damp so common in coal mines. Hence they were careful as soon as they saw any appearance of water. As a result of his reflections while the goblins were busy in their old home, it seemed to Curdie that it would be best to build up the whole of this gang, filling it with stone and clay or lye, so that there be no smallest channel for the water to get into. There was not, however, any immediate danger, for the execution of the goblins' plan was contingent upon the failure of that unknown design which was to take precedence of it, and he was most anxious to keep the door of communication open, that he might, if possible, discover what the former plan was. At the same time, they could not resume their intermittent labours for the inundation without his finding it out, when by putting all hands to the work, the one existing outlet might in a single night be rendered impenetrable to any weight of water, for by filling the gang entirely up, their embankment would be buttressed by the sides of the mountain itself. As soon as he found that the goblins had again retired, he lighted his lamp and proceeded to fill the hole he had made with such stones as he could withdraw when he pleased. He then thought it better, as he might have occasion to be up a good many nights after this, to go home and have some sleep. How pleasant the night air felt upon the outside of the mountain, after what he'd gone through in the inside of it. He hurried up the hill without meeting a single goblin on the way, and called and tapped to the window until he woke his father, who soon rose and let him in. He told him the whole story, and, just as he had expected, his father thought it was best to work that load no further, but at the same time to pretend occasionally to be at work there, in order that the goblins might have no suspicions. Both father and son then went to bed and slept soundly until the morning. Chapter 10 The Princess's King Papa The weather continued fine for weeks, and the little princess went out every day. So long a period of fine weather had indeed never been known upon that mountain. The only uncomfortable thing was that her nurse was so nervous and particular about being in before the sun was down that often she would take to her heels when nothing worse than a fleecy cloud crossing the sun threw a shadow on the hillside. And many an evening they were home a full hour before the sunlight had left the weathercock on the stables. If it had not been for such odd behaviour, Irene would by this time have almost forgotten the goblins. She never forgot Curdie, but him she remembered for his own sake, 
and indeed would have remembered him if only because Princess never forgets her debts until they are paid. One splendid sunshiny day, about an hour after noon, Irene, who was playing on a lawn in the garden, heard the distant blast of a bugle. She jumped up with a cry of joy, for she knew by that particular blast that her father was on his way to see her. This part of the garden lay on the slope of a hill and allowed a full view of the country below. So she shaded her eyes with her hand and looked far away to catch the first glimpse of shining armour. In a few moments, a little troop came glittering round the shoulder of a hill. Spears and helmets were sparkling and gleaming, banners were flying, horses prancing. And again came the bugle blast, which was to her, like the voice of her father calling across the distance, Irene, I'm coming. On and on they came, until she could clearly distinguish the king. He rode a white horse and was taller than any of the men with him. He wore a narrow circle of gold set with jewels around his helmet, and as he came still nearer, Irene could discern the flashing of the stones in the sun. It was a long time since he had been to see her, and her little heart beat faster and faster as the shining troop approached, for she loved her king papa very dearly, and was nowhere so happy as in his arms. When they reached a certain point, after which she could see them no more from the garden, she ran to the gate, and there stood till up they came, clanging and stamping, with one more bright bugle blast, which said, Irene, I'm come. By this time the people of the house were all gathered at the gate, but Irene stood alone in front of them. When the horsemen pulled up, she ran to the side of the white horse and held up her arms. The king stopped and took her hands. In an instant she was on the saddle and clasped in his great strong arms. I wish I could describe the king so that you could see him in your mind. He had gentle blue eyes, but a nose that made him look like an eagle. A long, dark beard, streaked with silvery lines, flowed from his mouth almost to his waist. And as Irene sat on the saddle and hid her glad face upon his bosom, it mingled with the golden hair which her mother had given her. And the two together were like a cloud with streaks of the sun woven through it. After he had held her to his heart for a minute, he spoke to his white horse, and the great beautiful creature which had been prancing so proudly a little while before, walked as gently as a lady, for he knew he had a little lady on his back, through the gate and up to the door of the house. Then the king set her on the ground and, dismounting, took her hand and walked with her into the great hall, which was hardly ever entered except when he came to see his little princess. There he sat down with two of his counsellors who had accompanied him to have some refreshment. And Irene sat on his right hand and drank her milk out of a wooden bowl, curiously carved. After the king had eaten and drunk, he turned to the princess and said, stroking her hair, Now, my child, what shall we do next? This was the question he almost always put to her first after their meal together, and Irene had been waiting for it with some impatience, for now, she thought, she should be able to settle a question which constantly perplexed her. I should like you to take me to see my great old grandmother. The king looked grave and said, What does my little daughter mean? I mean the queen, Irene, that lives up in the tower, the very old lady, you know, with the long hair of silver. The king only gazed at his little princess with a look which she could not understand. She's got a crown in her bedroom, she went on, but I've not been in there yet. You know she's there, don't you? No, said the king very quietly. Then it must all be a dream, said Irene. I have thought it was, but I couldn't be sure. 
Now I'm sure of it. Besides, I couldn't find her the next time I went up. At that moment, a snow-white pigeon flew in at an open window and settled upon Irene's head. She broke into a merry laugh, cowered a little, and put her hands to her head, saying, Dear Dovey, don't peck me. You pull out my hair with your long claws if you don't mind. The king stretched out his hand to take the pigeon, but it spread its wings and flew again through the open window, when its whiteness made one flash in the sun and vanished. The king laid his hand on his princess's head, held it back a little, gazed in her face, smiled half a smile, and sighed half a sigh. Come, my child, we'll have a walk in the garden together, he said. You won't come up and see my huge, great, beautiful grandmother then, King Papa, said the princess. Not this time, said the king very gently. She has not invited me, you know, and great old ladies like her do not choose to be visited without leave, asked, and given. The garden was a very lovely place. Being upon a mountainside, there were parts in it where the rocks came through in great masses, and all immediately about them remained quite wild. Tufts of heather grew upon them, and other hardy mountain plants and flowers, while near them would be lovely roses and lilies, and all pleasant garden flowers. This mingling of the wild mountain with a civilized garden was very quaint, and it was impossible for any number of gardeners to make such a garden look formal and stiff. Against one of these rocks was a garden seat, shadowed from the afternoon sun by the overhanging of the rock itself. There was a little winding path up to the top of the rock, and on top another seat, but they sat on the seat at its foot because the sun was hot, and there they talked together of many things. At length, the king said, You were out late one evening, Irene. Yes, papa, it was my fault, and Lutie was very sorry. I must talk to Lutie about it, said the king. Don't speak loud to her, please, papa, said Irene. She's been so afraid of being late ever since. Indeed, she has not been naughty. It was only a mistake for once. Once might be too often, murmured the king to himself as he stroked the child's head. I can't tell you how he had come to know. I'm sure Curdie had not told him. Someone about the palace must have seen them, after all. He sat for a good while thinking. There was no sound to be heard except that of a little stream which ran merrily out of an opening in the rock by where they sat and sped away down the hill through the garden. Then he rose and, leaving Irene where she was, went into the house and sent for Lutie, with whom he had a talk that made her cry. When in the evening he rode away upon his great white horse, he left six of his attendants behind him, with orders that three of them should watch outside the house every night, walking round and round it, from sunset to sunrise. It was clear he was not quite comfortable about the princess. Good night. <laughs>